0: In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 51, the Black Friday scandal. The stock market is in free fall, dropping 20 percentage points in one day. Brokers are going bankrupt left and right. Even farmers are losing their livelihoods with the price of grain plummeting by half in a matter of hours.
1: No, this isn't the Great Depression. It's not the 2008 recession or even the stock market crash of 1987. It's long before any of these.
0: In 1869, two men and their get-rich-quick scheme brought the U.S. economy to its knees and tainted the legacy of President Ulysses S. Grant forever
1: in the midst of this crisis president grant's administration made what might be the single most expensive mistake in presidential history and it all came down to misplaced trust
0: today we remember it as black friday it's got everything that makes for a good scandal bribery greed corruption sex murder and a mind-boggling 60 million dollars worth of solid gold. In
1: 1869, though, it was just Friday, September 24th. That morning, when Americans woke up to news of rapidly rising gold prices, they had no idea a disaster was coming, the likes of which the world had never seen.
0: Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard.
1: And I'm Kate. In the lead up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the 54 biggest scandals in US history. Every week until November 3rd, 2020, we'll look at how each of these moments shaped American politics and culture and what we can learn from the failures of the past.
0: You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. After the Civil War ended in 1865, the reunified USA was in dire economic straits. Although industries in the North had prospered thanks to the war effort, the high taxes imposed to fund the fight left the economy depressed and the formerly wealthy South was in far worse shape than the North.
1: The only people really doing well were the ultra-rich business elites, sometimes called titans of industry, or less flatteringly robber barons.
0: The Civil War created lots of opportunities for big business in the North to cozy up to the federal government which needed their support to supply the Union Army. After the war, those relationships continued. Even the most well-meaning politicians knew they needed to curry favor with the biggest tycoons of the day.
1: John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford. A who's who of dead white guys whose names are now on buildings. Adjusted for inflation, J.D. Rockefeller alone would have been worth three times more than Jeff Bezos is today.
0: Two names you probably haven't heard, though, are Jay Gould and James Fisk Jr. For a while, it looked like these two were going to take their place among the richest men in history. Born in 1836 and 1835, respectively, Fisk and Gould made a small fortune during the Civil War by trading gold and government bonds.
1: But nobody's ever satisfied with a small fortune— Fisk and Gould wanted more.
0: By the late 1860s, the two men began investing in the Erie Railway Company, which controlled then the longest railroad line in the world. Soon they owned enough shares to get seats on the board, seats which they immediately began to abuse by manipulating stocks and diverting profits into their own wallets. In with them on this scheme was a third man, Daniel Drew.
1: Of course, they faced some pushback from the rest of the board when they started to serve their own interests, and they drew attention from their competitors, too.
0: Their worst enemy was rival railroad tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt, owner of the New York Central Railroad. He was richer than the three cheaters by far. In 1868, Vanderbilt decided to add another feather to his cap by staging a hostile takeover of the Erie Railroad and pushing out Gould, Fisk, and Drew.
1: Antitrust legislation didn't come along until much later in American history, so there was nothing to stop a railroad company from creating a monopoly by buying up its competitors. Nothing, that is, except three unscrupulous robber barons who refused to let go without a fight.
0: If Vanderbilt was so determined to buy up the Erie Railroad stock, well, Gould, Fisk, and Drew intended to let him. Using their own personal printing press, the three men issued thousands of shares of fake Erie Railroad stock. The more shares they printed, the more their rival would need to buy in order to gain a majority. Like the old brain teaser about a man who walks halfway across the room with every step, Vanderbilt would think he was making progress towards his goal, but would never quite reach it.
1: Yes, that was illegal, even in 1868. Of course, so was embezzlement, and these three had no problem with that. They were called robber barons for a reason.
0: The scheme worked. Cornelius Vanderbilt spent more than seven million dollars buying Erie Railroad stock. But not only did he fail to gain a majority stake in the company, the value of all those shares was plunging fast.
1: Basic supply and demand. With Fisk, Gould and Drew flooding the market with funny stock certificates, demand dropped quickly and with it went the price of Erie Railroad Company shares.
0: A battle ensued in the courts and the legislature. First, Vanderbilt got an injunction from the New York Supreme Court barring his opponents from issuing any more stock certificates. Then, when they kept it up, he got the judge to hold Drew, Fisk, and Gould in contempt.
1: With police en route to arrest them, all three scoundrels fled across the river to New Jersey. Of course, this was all extremely entertaining to the public. It became known as the Eerie War, and for a brief time, it dominated the headlines.
0: While in exile in New Jersey, James Fisk sent for his mistress, Josie Mansfield. She was a failed actress whom he first met at a brothel. Fisk figured he might as well make the best of his stay in the Garden State, far away from his wife.
1: As for how long they were going to get back to New York without finding themselves in lockup, they had a plan for that too. They'd just buy the New York State Legislature.
0: Gould snuck back over the state border, traveled to Albany, and started handing out cash at the Capitol. In exchange, he wanted a bill passed that would legalize the fake stock certificates, overriding the court's decision.
1: The only problem was Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt had the same level of comfort about greasing palms, and he was even richer.
0: Whatever Gould gave a legislator, Vanderbilt would swoop in and top it. Gould ferreted out Vanderbilt's associates and paid them off to join his side of the battle. Vanderbilt paid him back in kind.
1: And the legislators, the people who'd sworn an oath to uphold the state constitution, were all too happy to play ball for cash. Men didn't become politicians in the age of robber barons for the piddly legislative salaries, that's for sure.
0: Vanderbilt eventually became so frustrated with the entire charade that he stopped upping the ante. When his bribes dried up, the legislators all moved to Gould's side of the aisle. The bill legalizing Erie's fake stock passed 101 to 6.
1: I'd like to know how the six holdouts got stiffed. Or maybe they were the only New York legislators who were above taking bribes.
0: With the fake stocks legalized, the trio had a new problem. Vanderbilt still owned $10 million worth of Erie shares. Not a majority, but enough to make him a very loud voice as a shareholder.
1: Vanderbilt had lost, but he also knew he had the resources to make life miserable for Gould, Fisk, and Drew. He proposed a settlement between them. In the end, the cheaters bought back half of Vanderbilt's funny stock, paying him back nearly $5 million of what he'd initially spent.
0: After settling up with Vanderbilt and throwing some money at the board of directors, Gould and Fisk respectively became president and vice president of the Erie Railroad as of October 13, 1868.
1: As the new president and vice president of the longest railroad line in America, they probably could have made all the money they could ever want just by keeping the company profitable. But that wouldn't be any fun for our boys.
0: In early July 1868, they sniffed out an opportunity for another scheme. This time, Fisk, Gould, and Drew tried to lock up all of the available cash in New York by withdrawing it en masse from the banks during the summer when a great deal of capital was tied up in agriculture. This would lead to a market crash, allowing them to buy a massive amount of stock and assets at rock-bottom prices. When the market rebounded, they'd be filthy rich.
1: But this time, the cheaters got cheated. Drew broke with the gang by withdrawing far less cash from the banks than he'd agreed to. And he used the savings to short Erie's stock.
0: Ordinarily, the buyer of a stock hopes that the value of their shares will increase, Short sellers, on the other hand, are betting that a company's value will drop over time. Instead of buying and holding stock, the buyer borrows shares from a broker and sells them immediately at the current price. If the stock's value decreases, then the investor can buy it back at a lower price and return the now cheaper shares to the broker. But if the stock goes up, the investor will have to repurchase them at a loss in order to return the shares to their owner. It's a complicated and risky way of playing the market.
1: Short selling is scorned by many, even on Wall Street, mostly because it's just plain rude to make your money by predicting others' misfortunes. It's even worse when those others are your own partners in crime. Drew, for example, stood to make millions at the expense of his colleagues.
0: To make things worse for everyone, as soon as the federal government got wind of the cash shortage in New York, they stepped in and threatened to release money from their reserves to stabilize the banks. When investors heard that government cash was on the way, the market promised to rebound earlier than the scammers anticipated, cutting off their chance for future profits.
1: It was curtains for scam number two. Daniel Drew, who shorted the stock, lost nearly a million dollars as Erie shares bounced back. And Gould and Fisk were left holding on to massive loads of stocks that wouldn't turn a profit.
0: But there was still one move to make. During the bear market caused by the cash lockup, Gould and Fisk released their cash and purchased oodles of Erie stock at $35 after the market rebounded, Erie's stock rose to nearly $50 per share. Gould and Fisk then bribed Erie's board of directors to buy all their stock back using the railroad's cash reserves. In other words, they looted their own company's savings account to earn a modest personal profit.
1: In the end, the biggest loser was the railroad itself, which ended up so deeply in debt after the stock buyback, that it wouldn't become profitable again for 70 years.
0: After that episode, Daniel Drew was cut out of any future scheming and the others' social lives. He never got another invitation from Gould or Fisk.
1: Which, by the way, was quite a loss. Fisk owned a steamship line that provided him with a fleet of steamships. He sailed these up and down the Long Island Sound, throwing huge parties on board. He even kept 250 singing canaries on each ship to entertain his guests.
0: Fisk had another expensive hobby, too, and her name was Josie Mansfield. He bought his paramour a townhome, outfitted her with a designer wardrobe, and paid her an allowance of up to $300 per week.
1: That's $5,000 in today's money and as if keeping her in the lap of luxury wasn't enough, Fisk eventually openly moved in with Josie without divorcing his wife.
0: As for Gould, he had a different first love, money. He spent it when necessary, but he liked hoarding it for its own sake. And what he liked most was gold. One of the biggest political issues of the day was the value of paper currency called greenbacks. During the Civil War, the United States went off the gold standard in order to print $450 million in paper currency for the war effort. This created an unstable two-currency system. Most goods and services could be purchased either in gold or in greenbacks, and the two could be used to buy one another. However, the value of each currency fluctuated separately. For example, one day a gold coin might be worth 80 greenbacks, and the next day it might be worth 100.
1: Investors didn't love this new system. They were afraid their greenbacks could suddenly become valueless with no federal goal to back them up. By
0: 1869, gold and paper money were both used as legal tender in the United States. There was even a process for trading the two on Wall Street. Jay Gould spotted a flaw in the system. If someone with millions of greenbacks traded them in for gold, he could cut off the supply of available gold.
1: In the small world that was Reconstruction-era Wall Street, a gold shortage would send prices skyrocketing. Then, the hoarders could sell their gold back for profit.
0: It was an obvious strategy, but there was one big problem that stopped other investors from trying it. The federal government might not be holding enough gold to back up the entire national supply of greenbacks, but they did have enough in their coffers to rebalance the market. If gold prices got so high that they threatened to destabilize the economy, the president was sure to step in.
1: Unless somebody could make sure the president stayed out of it. Somebody like, say, the president's brother-in-law.
0: After this, Gould and Fisk buy a president, or so they think. Now back to the story. In March of 1869, General Ulysses S. Grant took his oath of office and became President Ulysses S. Grant. The widely beloved Civil War hero was America's first four-star general. He was also just 46 years old when he took office, making him the youngest president in American history at the time.
1: President Grant knew right away that he had his work cut out for him. But if anyone was up to the challenge of reconciling the North and South, it was the man who'd personally accepted the surrender of Robert E. Lee.
0: Though he ran as a Republican, Grant wanted people to think of him as a post-partisan president. He couldn't afford to be seen as biased, not when he already faced so much mistrust from the former Confederate states. So he tried to avoid surrounding himself with partisan wonks and ideologues. Instead, he relied on the advice of his friends and family.
1: Yeah, that always works out great. One of the family members Grant trusted was his brother-in-law, Abel Corbin, who was married to Grant's sister, Jenny.
0: Corbin was a dumpy 60-something widower who wanted nothing more than to be in the inner circle of a commander-in-chief. But his brief career in Washington ended in 1856 after he was caught accepting a bribe while working as a congressional staffer.
1: As for Jenny, she was 37 when she met Abel Corbin. That was well past marriageable age in the 19th century. But when Abel spotted her at a ball in early 1869, he saw something in her that others had missed.
0: Specifically, her older brother, the president-elect. Jenny was widely known to be Ulysses' favorite sibling. So Corbin made a beeline for her and began plying her with compliments that would make a poet
1: blush. Despite his old bribery scandal, Corbin was well-liked in New York society. Jenny, who'd spent most of her life in her native Illinois, had few friends in high places, but wanted to make some. In exchange for an introduction to society circles, she could offer Corbin an introduction to the president.
0: It seemed like a fair deal to both parties. By May of 1869, they were married.
1: Jenny made good on her end of the bargain. Ulysses welcomed Corbin into his inner circle and began listening to his advice.
0: One area of particular concern for President Grant was the currency buyback program. The U.S. Treasury planned to use its gold reserves to buy back greenbacks from the public, which would appease the investors who were still angry about the government's move off the gold
1: standard. That was also an area of concern for notorious robber barons Jay Gould and James Fisk, who were plotting to corner the gold market and make a killing. They just needed President Grant to stop selling off Treasury gold so that they could buy up what was already in circulation. And they needed assurance that he wouldn't flood the market with more gold to stop their scheme once it started.
0: After their previous scams, Gould and Fisk were experts at sniffing out a man susceptible to bribery. Not that it took much sniffing to make their way to Corbin with his checkered past, In the spring of 1869, Gould began cozying up to the president's brand-new brother-in-law.
1: At first, it was about railroad business. Gould stopped by Corbin's property in New Jersey to ask if he could place a railroad track across his land. They negotiated a deal, and Gould was on his way. Of course, he'd gotten what he really came for, a warm start to a friendship with Corbin.
0: These two were both savvy capitalists who knew exactly how things worked in Washington. Corbin detected a payday in the future and decided to accelerate the process by asking Gould for investment advice.
1: Gould knew the gesture meant they were on the same page. It was time to do business.
0: A deal was soon struck. Gould and Fisk pitched it as a plan to help farmers and industrialists. They wanted to force gold prices through the ceiling and told Corbin that this would create a booming export market for Americans.
1: Of course, that wouldn't be the case at all. Unsubtle currency manipulation generally leads to more bust than boom. But Corbin was a Washington palm greaser, not an economist. He was nowhere near as rich as Gould or Fisk. He trusted that their scheme was going to work for everyone.
0: And Corbin wasn't about to be cut out of the loot. Gould agreed to deposit $1.5 million in gold into Corbin's bank account in exchange for his influence over President Grant.
1: That's about $28 million in today's money. Not bad for a summer job.
0: First order of business was getting Gould and Fisk into the president's inner circle. The closer they got to him, the less likely he'd be to suspect them of anything untoward.
1: Fisk and Gould knew how to make friends. With Corbin's help, they convinced President Grant to enjoy a day out on one of Fisk's famed steamships, the S.S. Providence. Starting from Long Island Sound, the vessel would sail to Fall River, Massachusetts, This gave the two robber barons a full 12 hours to gain the affection of the president.
0: Jim Fisk pulled out all the stops. He had the entire vessel cleaned and repainted. He laid in plenty of liquor and a store of the finest foods in New York. There were enough cigars on board for an army.
1: Also on board were a who's who of prominent capitalists. None, however, were richer, younger, or smarter than Fisk. He curated the guest list to ensure it.
0: At dinner, Gould and Fisk tried to persuade the president with their ideas about the gold market. But they were disappointed to find him firm in his convictions about the paper currency buybacks. Worse yet, Grant took not a single drink all night. Loosening him up with liquor was not going to work.
1: On to plan B. They'd need to make another big bribery purchase if this was going to work. This time, they went shopping in the U.S. Treasury Department.
0: Corbyn located a family friend, General Daniel Butterfield, who already had President Grant's ear. During the Civil War, Butterfield played a key role in getting Grant a large cash reward for his performance. Now Corbyn urged President Grant to appoint Butterfield as U.S. subtreasurer in New York.
1: It didn't take a lot of convincing. Rewarding an old friend with a cushy government post sounded pretty good to Grant, and Butterfield was qualified for the role. Corbyn's endorsement sealed the deal.
0: With the job offer secured, Gould and Fisk swooped in to enlist the new sub help. Butterfield agreed to accept the promise of $1.5 million of the profits from the Gold Corner, as well as an immediate interest-free $10,000 loan against the future payday.
1: That loan by itself would be worth nearly $200,000 today. It was more than Butterfield's annual salary as a sub-treasurer, but it was chump change for the two captains of the Erie Railroad.
0: Butterfield's role was simple. All he had to do was pay attention to Treasury Department communications and look for anything that indicated federal gold was about to be sold. If he got wind of a pending sale, he would notify Fisk and Gould immediately, and they would hold off on their plan.
1: Meanwhile, Jay Gould and James Fisk took advantage of the New York summer to lay even more groundwork for their scheme. While most of the city headed out to the Catskills or the Hamptons to escape the heat, Gould bought a controlling interest in a small bank known for shady dealings. Meanwhile, Fisk used his steamship cruises to strengthen his relationships with the business elite. As they wined and dined on his vessels, he pressed them for gossip about the gold market.
0: As the summer dragged on, the schemers got two big strokes of good fortune. First, gold prices were in free fall. By early August of 1869, an ounce of gold could be bought for just $135 in greenbacks, the lowest price since the U.S. first went off the gold standard. Second, Grant was softening on the issue of federal gold sales. Through his conversations with Corbin, he fell for the same shoddy logic that higher gold prices might help American farmers.
1: Of course, greedy Gould couldn't wait until Grant was all the way on board to start tipping his hand. On August 12, 1869, he bought up $375,000 worth of gold at rock-bottom prices. That's about $7 million today.
0: Conveniently, the White House was being remodeled that summer including the presidential living quarters. To get out of the way, President Grant took an extended tour of the eastern seaboard. Had he been less distracted, he might have noticed Gould and Fisk stockpiling gold throughout the month of August.
1: They were careful to purchase their gold in small installments, at least by Robert Barron standards, so as not to spike the price too early. Gold sank as low as $132 an ounce by August 20th.
0: Gould felt the time was right for a bigger buy. He recruited two more millionaires, and the three of them each agreed to buy $3 million in gold. They all promised to hold their share until prices rose significantly.
1: Price fixing on perhaps the grandest scale in history. That $9 million spent on gold would be $170 million today.
0: And on September 2nd, there was more good news for the Gould-Fisk partnership. In a meeting with Abel Corbin, President Grant let slip that he planned not to sell any Treasury gold in September.
1: When Fisk and Gould got the news, they swung into action. Fisk alone invested $7 million in gold.
0: To disguise their scheme for as long as possible, they placed their buys in pieces, concealing themselves behind brokers. Nobody knew who was behind the sudden bullish movement on gold. The price began to rise, and by mid-September, gold was at $141. By this point, the Gould Fisk Ring controlled a staggering $60 million in gold, or the equivalent of $1.1 billion today.
1: To put things even further into perspective, $60 million in gold was three times the amount of the total public gold supply in all of New York.
0: Whenever there are winners in the financial markets, there must also be losers. And in this case, the losers were the unfortunate investors who'd shorted gold when the price started falling. Unlike ordinary investors, short sellers can literally lose an unlimited amount of money, even more than they originally invested.
1: As prices rose to unsustainable heights, pressure mounted for the U.S. Treasury to begin selling off its gold to stabilize the market. Abel Corbin got nervous and sent an urgent letter to President Grant, begging him to reconfirm that his administration would not sell gold. Instead
0: of prompting reassurances, the letter raised Grant's hackles. It became clear to him that his brother-in-law was abusing his presidency for personal gain. Grant was so angry, he refused to even respond to the letter himself. On September 22nd, Abel Corbin received a chastening reply from the First Lady warning him that President Grant would do his duty to the country.
1: Corbin warned Gould immediately. But where Corbin saw a threat, Gould spotted an opportunity for a prize-winning double-cross. He didn't share the news with any of the other speculators, not even with Fisk. Instead, he encouraged the others to keep buying while Gould himself secretly began selling.
0: On September 24th, gold hysteria reached its peak. Fisk, who still had no idea about the coming crash, bragged to reporters that the price of gold would soon reach $200. Fisk had been right so far, and investors were listening to him. They bought, driving prices as high as $160.
1: Poet E.C. Stedman penned a witty verse about the situation. 160 can't be true. What will the bears at 40 do? How will the merchants pay their dues? How will the country stand the news? What will the banks but listen hold in screwing up the price of gold to that dangerous last particular peg? They had killed their goose with the golden egg.
0: It was true. The gold corner had killed its own golden goose. On September 24th, which would go down in history as Black Friday, investors became convinced that the rising gold prices meant greenbacks were about to collapse. And if that happened, banks would start folding, leaving depositors high and dry. Investors stormed New York's banks, demanding to withdraw their gold. Things got so violent, Local militias had to be deployed to prevent riots.
1: No bank could survive all of its depositors demanding their money at once. At any given time, most of a bank's reserves are lent out. They hold only enough cash in reserve to service an ordinary number of withdrawals each day. That's why we hear about the threat of a run on the banks whenever the economy heads into a tailspin.
0: President Grant knew it was time to act. Before noon on Black Friday, he met with Treasury Secretary George Boutwell and ordered him to bust the gold corner. Within minutes, Boutwell put the word out by telegram that the U.S. Treasury would sell $4 million in gold the next day.
1: Here's the problem with that plan. The Treasury didn't have $4 million in gold. Boutwell later said he meant to say $400,000 in his telegram and accidentally added the extra zero. But he just met with the president and received clear orders to stop the price of gold from rising. He might well have added the extra zero on purpose to make sure the plan succeeded.
0: It didn't work. By the end of the day, the gold boom became a gold bust. Prices crashed all the way back down to $133, leaving everyone who'd gotten into the gold market since late August ruined.
1: And the repercussions didn't stop there. Up next, Gould and Fisk's greed throttles the U.S. economy and stains a presidency.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: On September 24, 1869, now remembered as Black Friday, gold prices surged to $164 per ounce, then crashed to $133 after the U.S. Treasury announced plans to sell more gold than it actually had.
0: The repercussions devastated the entire American economy. As investors lost their shirts on gold, they sold off stocks in a desperate attempt to cover their losses. The stock market dropped 20 percentage points in a single day.
1: As soon as the click of bulls began to unravel, other investors started to realize who'd been behind it all along. A few hours after the gold market crashed, a speculator marched up to James Fisk and bloodied his nose
0: like a true robber baron, Fisk just stood there and took the punch. At least, he thought, he and his partner Gould were in this together. He looked forward to drinking away the pain of his losses with his old friend.
1: But Jay Gould had a secret. He'd learned two days ahead of time that Grant was planning to bust the Gold Corner. Instead of sharing the news with his partner, he secretly sold as much gold as he could before the bubble burst on Friday.
0: Since Gould hid his trades behind various brokers, it's impossible to tell exactly how much he made while hanging his partner in crime out to dry. But some historians estimate he netted as much as $12 million in two days.
1: This kind of betrayal would end most friendships. But on Black Friday, Gould and Fisk became closer than ever before. These two men understood each other. They shared the same moral code, or lack thereof. Fisk saw Gould's betrayal as an impressive chess move, not a knife in the back. They left the stock exchange in a carriage together and rode to Fisk's personal opera house.
0: Once there, they put their heads together. Gould admitted he'd made a mint by selling in secret over the last two days. Fisk, on the other hand, didn't even know how much he'd lost, but he knew it was in the tens of millions. Maybe as much as 30 million if all of his last-minute high-priced trades went through.
1: Gould had an idea. If they could somehow get Fisk's buys reversed, but also convince their brokers to honor Gould's sales, they could both come out whole.
0: The two men decided to make scapegoats of two of their fellow gold speculators, William Belden and Albert Spires. Neither were well-liked, and Spires was widely believed to be going senile. Fisk called his brokers and claimed that none of his buys on Friday were for his own account. They were all supposed to be placed for Belden and Spires.
1: No honor among thieves, as the saying goes.
0: There was one other enemy Gould and Fisk could agree upon Abel Corbin. The suspiciously timed letter Corbin sent to Grant had unintentionally alerted the president to their scheme. If Corbin had just sat on his hands and let the president make up his own mind, they might have pushed gold over 200 after all.
1: Fisk and Gould summoned Corbin to meet them at the Old Opera House. He answered their call, if only because the two men had, after all, paid him $1.5 million for his services.
0: When Corbin arrived, Fisk lit into him, calling him a damned scoundrel and other colorful epithets. After venting his rage, Fisk disclosed the real reason he wanted to see Corbin. He wanted the president's brother in law to help the two robber barons escape prosecution.
1: Of course, Corbin would need the proper motivation. But instead of a bribe, this time Fisk delivered a threat. If Corbin couldn't help, Fisk would drag the First Lady down with him. He planned to claim that Mrs. Julia Grant had accepted $25,000 to influence the president on the matter.
0: Corbyn knew that if his wrongdoing led to an attack on the First Lady's integrity, it would not only end his relationship with the President, it might end his marriage to the President's sister, Jenny. The whole family knew perfectly well that the First Lady never had anything to do with the crooked scheme.
1: But that wouldn't matter to the traders who were out for blood after the gold crash. If they heard even the faintest whiff of scandal, they'd believe it. They were already beating bankers in the streets. Rumor had it at least one banker was hanged after the crash.
0: Though he had little credit left with President Grant, Corbyn agreed to do his best to convince the president not to pursue a formal investigation into Gould and Fisk. For the price of $1.5 million in dirty money, Abel Corbin now realized he had not only sold his soul, but the rest of his life. If he ever turned on Fisk or Gould, they'd just blackmail him again.
1: The two scammers were well on their way to, yet again, coming out on top. As was often the case in the age of robber barons, a rich man could do almost anything, even topple the entire economy and get away with it.
0: Meanwhile, the run on the banks continued for several days. Armed guards were stationed to protect bankers as they served their customers. Depositors withdrew as much as they could, leaving the banks with nothing left to lend. As a result, the credit market tightened significantly, setting the stage for a recession.
1: When Gould and Fisk tried to sell President Grant on their scheme, They'd claimed a rise in gold prices would help American farmers by stimulating the export market. But when gold crashed, farmers suffered more than anyone else. Crop prices dropped by half, mostly because the usual investors in agricultural products were all broke after losing money on gold and stocks.
0: President Grant was furious that he'd allowed this to go on for so long and that the repercussions were hurting American industry. He ignored Corbyn's intercession and encouraged Congress to launch a formal investigation into Fisk and Gould.
1: But it was too little, too late. By the time Congress began looking into the matter, the scammers had successfully collected millions of dollars in ill-gotten gains. And now that they were flush again, They did what they'd always done best, distributed bribes.
0: After a few visits to Congress, the investigation mysteriously ceased. Gould and Fisk ultimately disappeared from the public eye, retiring to spend their money in peace. If only the economic repercussions were as easy to erase.
1: Sadly, the nation never fully recovered. The contraction in the stock market after Black Friday continued until 1870. Then, after a brief and tepid recovery, another stock market crash occurred in 1873, causing a recession not just in the USA, but in much of continental Europe. This might be about the most damage two people have ever done to the global economy.
0: Not to mention the Grant presidency. After the Black Friday disaster, the media discovered Grant's previously friendly relationship with Gould and Fisk. It wasn't hard to uncover. Thousands of people had seen him aboard Fisk's steamship.
1: Even though poor President Grant had been cheated by one of his closest advisors, the public came to think of his administration as corrupt. The loss of trust hampered Grant's efforts at reconciliation between the North and South.
0: Grant's heart was in the right place. Unlike many of his peers, he believed in a moderate, middle-road approach to Reconstruction. He wouldn't be overly conciliatory towards the states that had seceded, but neither would he punish the innocent southern citizens who'd been caught in the warpath. He passed laws to protect the freedmen who'd been emancipated in the South, yet went out of his way to ensure that non-slave-holding whites received the help they needed, too.
1: If it weren't for the Black Friday scandal, Grant might have been far more effective in reuniting the USA after the Civil War. But as things stood, Black Friday stained his reputation forever.
0: President Grant did manage to limp his way to a second term on the goodwill left over from his time as a war hero. But when another major financial scandal hit Grant in his second term, that goodwill evaporated. Although presidents could, at the time, run for as many terms as they liked, Grant left the White House in 1877.
1: He's remembered today as a well-intentioned but bumbling leader with an administration full of crooks.
0: It's hard to say if any president could have done a better job The Grant years were the height of what would later be dubbed the Gilded Age, a period of dramatic wealth inequality, the likes of which was never seen before nor since. Like Gould and Fisk, the rich simply did whatever they wanted. Effectively, the president during those years was not Grant, but the so-called titans of industry, who were rich enough to buy any legislator they wanted.
1: And as for the gold standard, it's still a hot-button issue today. The USA now depends almost entirely on fiat currency. In other words, money not backed by precious metals.
0: Some investors say this means we're on our way to another dramatic crash. Others see gold as an antiquated currency and point to new forms of money like Bitcoin as the way of the future.
1: We'll just have to wait and see. But we can hope that future presidents will be a little more careful about taking advice on economic policy from their in-laws. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number 50 on our countdown, the Jack Abramoff scandal. We all know Washington lobbyists are sleazy, but you won't believe how low Abramoff was willing to go to line his pockets, or how many White House officials helped him defraud his own clients.
0: You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
0: Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rosner and Kate Leonard.